Hey, friends and fam, it's John. It's time for the JMart cast for Monday, March 20th. What's going on? How are you? Hope you've had a good week. It's been a couple weeks since I've done a solo cast because previously, last week, I released an episode that was an interview with my good buddy, Laser Man. Check it out if you haven't already. Just a conversation with somebody who I met from the Toronto Bitcoin community. And we just talked about his story of how he came across Bitcoin, kind of like his story before that as well. Yeah, so happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, hope you had a good one. Didn't take it too far. This St. Patty's, I probably had a little bit too much to drink, but the recovery day wasn't too bad. Not too many uh, responsibilities. So I'm mostly okay today. <laughs> so anyways, because... I guess uh, last week I released that interview episode. I didn't get a chance to talk about what happened over the weekend uh, prior to that, which was the three banks in the United States uh, failing. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. The second largest bank failure in U.S. history. And it was two at first, and then well, that was on a Friday, and then banks closed over the weekend. And then on Sunday, there was a third one as well. Uh, they're called what? The Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, and Signature. So yeah, these are banks that failed. And from what I understand, it's because there was a bank run, meaning that many of the depositors all at once tried to withdraw their money out of the bank. And of course, the bank does not have the money there. And it can only <laughs> help withdraw the first of the people who go for the bank run, right? The, the later you are, the less likely you are to get any of your money back. And so that's kind of what happened. Now, of course, the natural question from there is, okay, if they don't have the money, who's got the money? Where is it? Like, what do they do with it? And so, well, the banks take the money and then they use it to buy some assets to purchase whatever they think is going to do well over time and go up in value. Now, remember in 2008, they had used the money to buy these mortgage-backed securities, right? Which are basically a whole bunch of mortgages stacked together. And it just turned out that a bunch of these mortgages that were sold were actually were going to default, which meant that the mortgage-backed securities that had put all these together were worthless. And that's part of the reason why the banks failed, right? Did, if you guys watched, uh, what's that movie called? The Big Short, that's, they kind of explained it in that movie. Go check it out. It's actually a good one. There's a good scene in it where when like the guys who, there's like these young guys who bet that the banks were going to fail and uh, they're like finally getting their payoff and they're really happy about it and they're like jumping and dancing and like celebrating and their mentor is Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt's just like, stop, don't dance. Like the line is just don't dance, just don't dance. <laughs> Uh, it's a memorable part of the movie. But so, yeah, these mortgage-backed securities were like risky investments. And so the banks were mandated to buy safer investments, which were deemed to be government bonds because obviously the government's going to pay back its bonds. And so these banks, like... uh Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, they used depositor funds to buy uh, uh, government bonds. The only problem was 
they did this like at a time where bond interest rates were super, super low, like 1% or less, which, <laughs> which is not very good because as soon as interest rates start to go up, they have like this inverse correlation with the actual value of the bonds. So a whole bunch of the assets that these banks have that are supposed to be used to be able to provide, I guess, liquidity for their customers to withdraw funds was now shrinking in value as they were going basically through one of the fastest rate hikes in history. So the value of these bonds are just plummeting super fast, way faster than they might have anticipated. And, you know, in addition to that, with the interest rate hikes, a lot of the customers at these banks are also, uh, you know, losing a lot of their uh, cash reserves as, as they have to make higher interest payments. So they have to withdraw their deposit deposits from the banks, right? So if they have to make more withdrawals and at the same time, the bank has a smaller and smaller amount that they can provide for them to withdraw, then yeah, someone's, something shit's going to hit the fan. So that's exactly what happened. There was a bank run. Um, then, and then before the weekend was out, there was a bailout. Basically, the Federal Reserve, which is like the bank for the banks, came out and said, we're going to backstop all of the depositors. Now, I think they, the investors in the banks are losing money and like the uh, actual people working in the bank as well. Those It's all gone. Um, but the depositors are going to be made whole. So it's like a partial bailout, but it, it's still a bailout. And then from what I understand, there's also like a pre-bailout of all future banks of this happening again because essentially what they're going to do is if a, a bank is uh, having trouble meeting its deposits, now they have the opportunity of taking those bonds that they bought, which have lost a lot of value, right? They're probably like worth 70 cents on the dollar, maybe less uh, because of the interest rate hikes. They can take these bonds to the Federal Reserve and get full value out of them at a loan. <laughs> oh, and it's only for a temporary period of time. And of course, we all know there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government measure. But in any case, the point is that it's just another bailout. It's another expansion of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, right? The central bank, the most important central bank in the world. They're just expanding their balance sheet yet again. So what does that mean? I think it means that there's no way inflation is going anywhere. And, you know, expect for the price of things to continue to go up, right? Because like they're, they're creating new units, of fiat money to make up for not only the depositors who are being made whole, but also any future bank who's lost value in these garbage government bonds to make up for that lost value with these loans. So now it's basically okay for banks to buy as much government debt as possible because they're always going to be made whole and no matter how much the value goes down, it doesn't matter. And so all these new units are just diluting any units that, any fiat money units that you and I might have. And that's why this stupid system sucks and there's no better example or better way for someone to explain why Bitcoin is important and why you should consider owning some. 
there's two clear problems here that you can see, right? Like the first problem is that you have to take your money and deposit it into a bank because it's hard for you to hold on to it, to hold on to it securely, right? You're just trusting the bank to hold on to it and not lose it and not let somebody else steal it. These are important features that a bank provides that, that are good. And so that's why we use them. But then we have to trust them not to mess with it, right? Like they just take it and buy this garbage debt with it. And then boom, it goes to nothing because, you know, these people at these central banks are playing games and now your money's gone. So Bitcoin is better because there is no third party. Even though it's digital, you can hold it yourself without the need of anybody because it's based on math. And the other problem with this whole thing that happened is the solution for it, right? The solution is to print more money, make new units, make up for the lost ones. But what's the problem with that now is that, like I already said, all the rest of us regular people suffer for it because our units are diluted with all these new ones. Well, that doesn't happen with Bitcoin because there's 21 million only and it's absolute scarcity. So... No one's going to bail anybody out when it comes to Bitcoin and there's never going to be more units created. So your stuff is always the same amount. No one can steal from you through inflation. These are two very important problems. The problem of third parties that are not trustworthy and the problem of central bankers and central points of authority using that and abusing, I should say, abusing their authority to steal from the rest of us by inflating the supply of money. Even children understand that we need to have scarcity when we're talking about money. Money needs to be scarce. If it is not, then it is worthless. I mean, am I crazy for saying that? Maybe. Uh, but so Bitcoin's been responding fairly well from this whole thing initially as we heard the news of the banks failing the price of it dipped to like 20,000 and then since then it's going been going up to now it's at 27,000 speaking of which let's do a bitcoin update block height 781,596 price of one bitcoin trading at 27,716 dollars U.S. that is, one U.S. dollar will buy you 3,610 Satoshis. Remember, Satoshis are the smallest subunit of a Bitcoin. One Bitcoin subdivides 100 million times. And by the way, huge thanks goes out to a few people who've sent me some sats, some Bitcoin, uh, through the Fountain app uh, for the podcast. Thank you so much. I've had three people send me boosts. The first one was actually a friend of mine who uh, I sent the sats to <laughs> and then he uh, sent it back to me. And um, so appreciate that. I, I did make that uh, call and said, if anyone's interested, I will send you sats. Uh, and actually I did a post on Twitter and I ended up giving out uh, 4,000 sats to five random people who replied to my post. In addition to my buddy who, of those five people, nobody sent me sats, but my buddy sent it all back to me. And then in addition to my buddy, I had one from at uh, Resar, R-E-E-S-A-R. 
they say, nice to see fellow plebs being interviewed. Great to hear Laserman's story. So this was a boost for last week's episode where I interviewed Laserman. Check it out. And then for that same podcast episode, I got another boost from at Breaking Toxic. They say, <laughs> well done, brother. Keep on keeping on. Thank you, Breaking Toxic. Appreciate the the sats. Appreciate the words. Same to you, Reesar. Uh, appreciate both of you and my buddy, Greg. <laughs> you, love you, bud. Thanks for sending me sats. All right. So this week, I'm going to talk about uh, private keys in Bitcoin, and I'm, and I'm going to refer to learnmeabitcoin.com for assistance to help me talk a little bit more clearly about it. So, of course, you've heard of Bitcoin. You might have also heard of crypto. Now, nowadays, when people talk about crypto, what they're talking about is that uh, all those other coins besides Bitcoin that are being traded all the time and price of which goes up and down, which do not have the same utility as Bitcoin and most people who are seriously into Bitcoin call those shit coins. But in any case, crypto and Bitcoin, they both use cryptography, right? So even though crypto currently refers to cryptocurrencies, and really the only good one, again, like I said, is Bitcoin, all the other rest, the rest of them are shit coins. The original word crypto was actually short for cryptography, right? And cryptography is the practice of uh, techniques for secure communication, so basically, it's about constructing and analyzing ways that prevent third parties from or just the public from reading private messages. That's cryptography, the original crypto. And that's what Bitcoin uses in order to give you this property that allows you to hold it yourself without needing a trusted third party. So because of cryptography, Bitcoin has this unique ability for you to be able to be the only person in control of it and no requirement for anybody else. So how exactly is this done? It all starts with the private keys. So this is where I'm going to start referring to learnmeabitcoin.com. If you go to that website and in the top, hit the beginners tab, then scroll down to number four keys and addresses, then you hit private keys you'll be at the same page that I'm referring to. Okay, so what are private keys? Essentially, one way to think of them as just a randomly generated big number. That's what a private key is, just that. A huge number with lots and lots of digits. <laughs> How many digits, you ask, Jmart? Well, in Bitcoin specifically, they use a 256-bit numbers. So bits, what are, what are bits? It's getting confusing already, oh no. So a bit is the smallest unit of data inside a computer. So a 256-bit number is just a number that can store inside like a 256 bits of data, I guess. So the smallest unit of data that can be stored is either a one or a zero, right? So 256 bit number is essentially just 256 
digits in a row of either a one or a zero, right? So it'll be random, num random order of ones and zeros, 256 in a row. That is a private key. That's all it is. And so in order to generate a private key, like make your own private key that belongs just to you, literally all you have to do is flip a coin 256 times and and of course, you got to assign, you know, heads one, tails zero, or vice versa, and then just write it down, whatever you flip for 256 times. Actually, that's not 100% true. I think there's something like the last digit or the last few digits, there's something special about it where like not every number can be a private key where like, uh, anyway, I don't exactly, I can't explain it, but I, it's not exactly what I just said, but it's very close to that. So essentially, you just need to make sure that you have a surefire way, surefire way of creating randomness. That's why flipping a coin is good. Because the problem is you really want to make sure you have a real good randomness to the number that you generate. So that in case there's no like, in case there's a pattern in the way that you're generating your numbers, someone knowing that pattern could exploit it uh, to be able to get your private key recreated and then you know once they have your private key they can take your bitcoin from you essentially that's how it works so i mean i don't want to make it sound scary or anything but it's not that hard to create randomness you just got to make sure you actually do it and of course the reason for that is probably because of the question you might have which is well what if somebody generates the same private key as me like wouldn't that happen and of course, the answer is, well, if it did happen, then it would be bad because then they could use the private key to steal your Bitcoin from you. But the true answer is you don't have to worry about it because nobody is going to randomly generate the same private key as you. And the reason for that is, is just that the number of possibilities that are out there for the total number of numbers that it could be for 256 ones and zeros is just unfathomably large. Essentially, it's just impossible for the human brain to be able to visualize the scale of, you know, this, how large this number is, just like it's hard for us to imagine the scale of the universe. So basically, it's impossible for somebody else to generate the same private key as you. In this uh, website, learnmeabitcoin.com, they have a funny example here. They say, for example, if you have 1 million monkeys who could each generate 1 million private keys per second, in brackets, I've trained them well, haha, <laughs> it would take roughly, and they have just like an, an enormous number that I can't even read like what this number is because it's got like probably more than 20 digits. Uh, million years that's how like <laughs> 20 digits and then it ends with million years before one of the monkeys generates the same private key as you so this is the example they give even if you're like randomly generating a million private keys per second it'll be millions of years before someone can guess your private key so there you go that's pretty much all there is to say about private keys except i guess the one final note to finish off on is that you use private keys to send Bitcoin to other people. And I guess the other thing with the private key is, of course, you use the private key to create a public key. 
which is used by others to send Bitcoin to you. Now, the technicals of how all that's done, that's outside the scope of this podcast, but at least now you know what private keys are. They're just a randomly generated large number. In Bitcoin, it's 256 bits long, which means it's just 256 ones and zeros. And you use it to send Bitcoin to others or to generate a public key, which others use to send Bitcoin to you. And with that, we've reached the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to all the people who listen to the very end. Thank you to all the people who send sats for the podcast. Appreciate you very much. Even if you're just listening, appreciate you very much also. If you haven't, please take a second and rate the podcast either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Other than that, be grateful, stay active. Jmart out.